And with a statement of absolute authority, Pontius Pilate handed down the sentence to Jesus. The sentence, diminishing the majesty of the Roman people. For short, they called it maestas. It was this far-reaching law that covered everything from slander and libel all the way up to the more serious sedition and treason. And for the history of this law, the punishment was to exile people from the Roman kingdom and to confiscate all of their personal goods. But something happened in 21 AD underneath the rule of Tiberius. You see, Tiberius elevated this law and elevated the punishment to include death. So in that moment when Pilate extended the punishment, Jesus received the death penalty. He was flogged, a wooden beam was put over his shoulders, and he was crucified. And for all those people that were closest to Jesus, now they disassociated themselves from him, claiming to never have known him or ever to have met him or ever had to connected with him. For those who were closest to Jesus, who walked with him from city to city to city, they now vanished, nowhere to be seen. For those that were closest to Jesus, who were the most outspoken, elevating Jesus' name, they were silenced. For those that were closest to Jesus, who were just hours before fiercely defending him, they were now minimized. For all of the people that claimed that Jesus was the one true Messiah, they now questioned. Had everything that they had given up to follow him, had everything that they had abandoned to associate themselves with him, what was that worth? For all those that claimed that Jesus was the Messiah, they now looked at him on the cross and now they doubted. Was he really the promised one? Was he really the Messiah? Was he really the one that all the prophets had talked about? Was he really the one that we had been waiting for? For all those that claimed that Jesus was the Messiah, they now feared. Because if they could do that to Jesus, oh, what are they going to do to us? And for all of those that claimed that Jesus was the Messiah, they now wondered. Because you see, they had looked him in the eyes. And they knew something was different about him. They had encountered him and witnessed him and heard him talk and heard him teach. And there was something so dramatically different about Jesus. But yet they were witnessing him on a cross. You see, we today... We celebrate Easter. And just several days ago, we observed Good Friday. Good Friday being a, a time to remember and reflect on what Christ did on the cross. And Easter being a time to celebrate that he's alive. Because you see, it is the resurrection that separates out Jesus from everyone else. The fact that he was fully dead and he conquered the grave. 
You see, Jesus was a great teacher, but there's been many great teachers that have spanned the course of time. Jesus was a great philosopher, but there's been other great philosophers that have spanned the course of time. Jesus cared for the widows and the orphans and the poor, but there's been others that have cared for the widows and orphans and poor. Jesus healed people, but other people have healed people. You see, what separates out Jesus from all other people in Christianity, from all other belief systems, is the resurrection. We think about the in-between time. You see, we know both stories, Good Friday and Easter, but for this group of people, all they know is that Jesus is on a cross. They have no comprehension of what's to come next. And in this in-between time, this moment of great uncertainty, something heroic is going to take place. In this in-between time, between Good Friday and Easter, two men emerge from the shadows of hesitation to put forth a set of critical events that would shine a light on the resurrection. In this in-between moment, between Good Friday and Easter, Two men take this mesmerizing step of faith. And in doing so, they verify Jesus' death and in return legitimize his resurrection. John captures this moment that we find in John chapter 19. And he's going to introduce us to these two men. And he's going to shine a light on three critical events that they lead through. This is what John writes. He starts off by saying later, and we know that to mean somewhere between 3 and 6 p.m. Closer to 6 p.m. than 3, Jesus is dead. And they realize that they need to do something with the body. And John tells us that Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared, and don't forget those two words, because he feared the Jewish leaders. He goes on, with Pilate's permission, he came and took away the body. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, a man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. See, John introduces us to these two men, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, and what we know about them is they were both Pharisees. They were kind of the religious elite. If you wanted to simplify their job description, it was just to be really, really good. They had all the laws memorized, the 630-some laws memorized. And they were actively pursuing following all of them. They would have the entire Bible memorized. But beyond just being a Pharisee, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they both sat on the Sanhedrin. It was the Jewish ruling council. You see, in the Jewish culture, there was no separation between church and state. Government and religion were interconnected. And Rome had allowed them to govern themselves as long as the Jewish people would pay taxes to Rome and make sure they were subservient to Roman power. As long as they followed some simple guidelines, Rome allowed them to govern themselves. And so these two men sat on this ruling council. You see, what we discover 
in the Bible is that the Pharisees were kind of putting this full court press on anyone who was associating themselves with Jesus. In John 12, uh, John gives us this great picture into kind of the, the emotional culture surrounding Jesus at that time. He talks about that there's many uh, in leadership positions, Jewish leaders that believed in Jesus, that were secretly following Jesus, but they feared that if anyone found out, not only would they lose their leadership positions, that the Pharisees would excommunicate them from the church. But then John tags on this one thought. He simply said, for they love the approval of man, the praise of man, more than they love the praise from God. And think about that, some 2,000 years later. I'm sure all of us, I know I do, struggle with that. Wanting the approval and the praise and the acceptance of mankind more than God's acceptance. Where I look outward to other people to affirm me and to like me and to approve me more than God's approval. And you see Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were these two men that were struggling through their spiritual journey. So much so, in John chapter 3, we see this moment where Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Why? Because he feared that if he'd be seen having a conversation with Jesus, right, he would be removed. So he comes to Jesus at night, and they have this whole conversation and, and, and Nicodemus, you can see him struggling through the conversation because he was trying to frame what Jesus was talking about into a human uh, context. And Jesus was talking about this second birth, this rebirth to be born again. And Nicodemus was trying to intellectualize it, going, how can a human being who's a grown adult be born again? And he literally states, Jesus, can, can a human, a, a grown adult, actually Go back into his mother's womb? That makes no sense. But you see, Jesus was talking about something that was going to happen in the spiritual realm. Something beyond Nicodemus' human context. And so in this moment, as these two men stood there and watched Jesus on the cross, something happened within them. Something happened within them to help them overcome that fear. Something happened within them to help them disassociate themselves from being not only a Pharisee, but on the Sanhedrin, on the religious ruling council. And they said, we know Jesus is dead on the cross, but we are going to do something heroic. And so we find out that Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate to ask Pilate for his body. And you see, this is the first of three critical events that's going to take place in this in-between time. You see, it was Roman kind of custom that if you were to be crucified, you wouldn't get a proper burial. They didn't want to honor your death. And so they would take bodies off the cross and they would wheel them and and dump them in a, a mass burial grave. It's more like a garbage dump. And they would just dump trash and bodies in one place. But if you had enough money, you could find the guy whose job it was to collect the bodies, put the bodies in a wagon, and take them to the dump. And you could pay that person off. But you see, if Joseph of Arimathea would have chosen to do that in private, into secret, in secrecy, guess what? Three days from then, 
when Jesus would come back, people would just assume, well, I guess he really wasn't dead on the cross. I guess when they took him off the cross, he was still alive. And I guess when they threw him in that garbage dump, his radical followers came and got his body and nursed him back to health. You see what Joseph of Arimathea did on that day is he went public. He went to the guy that handed down the death sentence in a very public forum. He said, Pilate, I claim Jesus' body. I associate myself with Jesus. Pilate, I want Jesus' body. And Pilate said, okay. And can you imagine the shockwaves that was sent through that culture? That a guy sitting on the Sanhedrin now publicly claimed Jesus' body. So they got his body. And then John leads us to the second critical event. It says, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus' body. The two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in, in accordance with Jewish burial customs. You see, in this moment, they wanted to make sure they wanted to honor Jesus' body. What they didn't realize they were doing was verifying that he was dead. 75 pounds of aloes and myrrh. Experts think there was another about 25 pounds of linen. Over 100 pounds engulfed Jesus' body from head to toe. Even if there was a chance that he was still alive at this point, there's no way he could have breathed. He would have suffocated. And in this one step of incredible love and respect for Jesus, they verified his death. And then, this is what they did. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a, a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. He goes on, and he tells us, because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. We find out in the other Gospels that this tomb was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. It was his personal tomb. And this tomb was carved into rock. And as they took Jesus' body, fully prepared, fully wrapped, they laid him into this rock tomb, slid the stone in front of it, verifying that he was in the grave. You see, you think about these three critical events, the public declaration that they had his body. There's no question about it. There's no mystery about it. There's no secrecy about it. You think about them properly burying him or uh, uh, wrapping him, verifying that he was dead, and then they locked him into the tomb. And I think about this moment. I think about this moment. They had no, no clue what was going to come next. They couldn't fathom what was going to come next. All they knew. There's something different about Jesus. There's something different about him that motivated them to get over their fear, disassociate themselves from their position of power to honor Jesus. What they couldn't fathom 
was that the end was just the beginning. The sun was about ready to rise. And this group of ladies start to head to the tomb. And there's these moments in the Bible where you, you just have to kind of pause a little bit and, and read between the lines. And these are one of these moments that you just kind of read between the lines. The Bible doesn't really articulate this, but you kind of have to connect some dots. You see, this group of ladies who are headed back to the tomb were bringing with them spices and myrrh and aloes. But what's interesting, it's the same group of ladies that were there with Joseph and Nicodemus the night that they wrapped the body. And I kind of thought about that moment a little bit. And you just have to kind of put yourself in that place. And quickly it kind of came to me. Of course these ladies would come back. Why? There's no way two guys could have done that properly. Right? Us guys would just mess the whole thing up. We'd be like, I don't know, how do you wrap this? I don't just dump it on. Like, right? We, we just have no clue. And so this group of ladies were like, yeah, yeah, we left Joseph and Nicodemus wrapping Jesus' body. They messed it up. We got to come fix it. So they were on the, the way to fix what two guys had obviously messed up. The tomb was empty. And what else I find interesting? Not one person was at the tomb waiting, anticipating, expecting Jesus to be alive. I mean, Peter wasn't there. I mean, Cephas, Peter, rock, the one that Jesus looked at and said, upon this rock, I will build my church. He wasn't there. John, the beloved he wasn't there. Mary, Jesus' mom, she wasn't there. And this group of ladies came anticipating that Jesus would be dead. The news spread as people encountered Jesus alive. As people talked with Jesus and touched Jesus and interacted with Jesus and the news spread and I think about Nicodemus when he received word when someone told him hey Nicodemus I've seen Jesus he's alive and I think about Nicodemus is this entire journey that he's been on sort of replay in his mind I think about this moment in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night in secret and I just wonder if Nicodemus started thinking about that entire conversation and now it all started to make sense. This entire idea to be born again, to be born a second time. You see, there's another part of this, this, this moment that Nicodemus had with Jesus. When Jesus started to tell a story to Nicodemus, the story is found in, in the book of Numbers. And I can just imagine Nicodemus saying to Jesus, hey, Jesus, I know this story. And Jesus was like, hey, Nicodemus, just 
give me some time. I want to retell the story to you. And Nicodemus, I'm sure, wanted to say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, I have the entire Bible memorized. I know the story. And Jesus said, shut up. Let me tell you the story again. He probably didn't say shut up. That's not nice. And Jesus starts to tell him the story from Numbers where the Israelite people sinned against God. They went against God. And so God sent these venomous snakes. And these venomous snakes started to to bite all of these Israelites. And they started to die. And all of a sudden, one day, they're like, oh, we're tired of dying. Moses, help us. Moses, go to God. We're sorry. We repent. We wrong God. We sin against God. We get the point. So Moses goes to God. And Moses says, okay, God, they're repentant, they're sorry, get rid of the snakes. But God chooses not to get rid of the snakes. You know what God says to Moses? I want you to craft a bronze snake, and I want you to put it on a pole. I want you to put it up in the air. And anytime someone gets bitten by the snake, if they look at the bronze snake, they will be healed. I mean, it's one of those stories in the Old Testament. You, you sit back going, wow, what? Yeah. Right? I mean, it's just, why didn't God get rid of the snakes? That had been the easy thing to do. He sent the snakes. Get rid of the snakes. So, jo- so Jesus is telling this story to Nicodemus, right? And then Jesus said these words. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. I mean, notice it doesn't say everyone who behaves, or everyone who has all the right answers, or everyone who is good enough, or everyone who has it all together, or everyone who prays the most, or everyone who goes to church the most, or everyone who beliefs and I think about Nicodemus in this moment where this entire encounter with Jesus starts to replay in his mind and all of a sudden the picture becomes extremely clear ha oh, Jesus I get it and then I think Nicodemus had one of those moments where he's like oh I'm an idiot remember when Nicodemus said to Jesus what what do you mean Jesus a grown man's going to Go back into his mother's womb? That's weird. And I'm sure Nicodemus was like, oh, did I really say that out loud to Jesus? The entire picture now becomes clear for him and for everyone else. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he brings this entire thing together in a beautiful picture when he writes these words. It says, for what I received, I passed to you as of first importance. That phrase, first important, literally means the most critical. Nothing comes close to what I'm going to say right now. Pay attention. Hold on to these words. That Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. That, that, that he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He goes on. And that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 
500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Get this. He's laying out this picture to say, hey, not only did Jesus come and walk and get crucified and get buried, but he's risen. And I'm proving to you that he's alive because it's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a, 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 a rumor that's going on. People have seen him alive, and over 500 people have seen him. And then he goes on and says, hey, by the way, most of whom are still living. Go find them. Go talk with them. They're still alive. They can tell you. And then he adds this kind of sobering thought. Though some have fallen asleep. Some are dead. But many are still alive. And then he finishes out. He says, then he appeared to James, which is Jesus' half-brother. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And Paul drove a stake into the ground. And he said, it's verified that Jesus was dead. Verified that he was dead. And because it was verified that he was dead, it legitimizes his resurrection because he is alive. And it wasn't one person. It wasn't two people. It wasn't three. It wasn't a conspiracy. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people have encountered the risen Lord. See what I know in this room today. All of us are on a spiritual journey. And we're somewhere along the point that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus found themselves. Maybe for you, it's more like Nicodemus early on where he's going to Jesus in secret. And maybe right now, that's where you find yourself spiritually. You're not sure, you got questions, and you're just trying to figure out who Jesus is. And you're kind of in secret. You're trying to figure this thing out. But I want you to know you're on the journey. For some of you, for some of you, you're exactly what, what John talked about in John chapter 12. Where privately you believe. But you're still struggling through the praise of man over the praise of God. And I just want you to know, God's glad where you are in your spiritual journey, but he wants you to know that all you need is him. All you need is affirmation from him. All you need is praise from him. And he wants you to live your faith out loud. For some of you, you're right at that critical step. Like Joseph and Nicodemus. Right at that critical step. And something is within your spirit right now. Just like within their spirit as they stood there and they watched Jesus die. But there was something within them that motivated them, that moved them to overcome their questions, that, to overcome their doubts and their fears, to associate themselves with Jesus. And for them, they didn't even know the end of the story, the real end. But maybe right now within your spirit, that's where you find yourself. And I just want you to know, Jesus came to die for all people. And all you have to do is believe in him, that he died for you and conquered the grave. And maybe 
today is that step that you take. And maybe for you, Easter Sunday is all about celebrating your faith that you so proudly live out. Where it's that moment where you just kind of sit back and say, Jesus, you are alive. It's a great moment, a celebration. Wherever you find yourself at spiritually, take steps, move, allow God to guide your path. Let's pray. Lord, we celebrate you today because you're alive. And I'm thankful that two men trying to work out their spiritual journey decided decided to take a step out and associate themselves with you because through their mesmerizing step of faith, they've verified your son's death and in return legitimized your resurrection. Lord, for wherever people find themselves out today, Lord, I pray that they'll just know that you're alive and that you are with them and that you are walking beside them and that you will never abandon them. Your love motivates you so. And Lord, on this Easter Sunday, we thank you for the ultimate gift. Well, here at Renaissance Church, as you can probably see already, uh, we kind of like to do church a little uh, differently than uh, other churches. And uh, we like to have fun. And uh, there's so much uh, to celebrate here on this Easter uh, Sunday. And if you're a guest with us, I just want to say thank you. Thanks for uh, coming and checking things out here and uh, uh, walking up three flights of stairs. And uh, man, I, I, I get what it feels like to walk into any place for the first time, but let alone church. That's a whole different thing. And so thanks for coming. And uh, I'd love to just invite you through the double doors after we're done here today. We're not done yet, by the way, but after we're done, uh, to go into our cafe area, and we have our guest center there, and we have an incredible team of people that want to connect with you and get to know you and answer any questions you have about Renaissance, why we're here, and um, why we exist. And so please do that after service today. You see, one of the unique parts of Renaissance is this. We're all a bunch of people trying to figure this out together. Man, trust me, I, I don't have this more figured out than you do. I have my own list of questions and doubts and faith moments that create a lot of tension. And, but you see, what we're committed to doing here at Renaissance is let's do this together. Let's help each other out on the journey. Man, if we have questions, maybe someone else can help answer those questions. And moments of doubt, maybe someone else can come and help work through those doubts. And moments where it feels like life can't get any darker, maybe someone else can come beside to help navigate through those difficult times of life. It's just about doing life together. And you see, it's not our purpose as a church. It's God's purpose as a church. It's for his people to come together. Very unique individuals coming together to say, let's go on this journey together. And I think about Nicodemus and Josephus in that moment. What, what if they weren't together? What if they never had a conversation together? What if uh, Nicodemus just stood by himself and says, man, I need to do something, but oh, I can't do this. What if Josephus stood there and looked at the cross and said, I feel motivated, compelled to do something, but yet he was by himself. Something happens when you come together 
And I could just imagine their conversation where they're standing there going, we got to do something. I know we got to do something. What? I don't know. And then someone floated this idea, we need to get his body. And then someone floated the idea, well, how should we do it? And then someone said, we need to go to Pilate. And then someone said, well, who's going to, who's going to do that? It's Pilate. He's the governor. He has all the power. And then one of them said, want to flip a coin? Okay, sure. Nicodemus was like, yes, I get to go grocery shopping for aloes and myrrh. And Josephus was like, oh, no, I got to go to the governor. But you see, they did it together. And you see, that's the heartbeat of Renaissance Church. A bunch of people together on the spiritual journey. And so I would like to invite you back next weekend. We kick off a new series, and... Uh, uh, all a series is is basically we talk about a subject matter until we uh, run out of things to say, and uh, and then we move on from there. And uh, and so we kick off this new series uh, next weekend. And uh, you know if you, if you have a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend or you have kids or you have a mother-in-law or father-in-law or a boss or a friend or a coach or if you know someone, guess what? You understand that relationships are complicated. And what's great about this is the Bible is a great tool, a great resource, because there's so much wisdom in the Bible when it comes to relationships. And so we're just going to spend some weeks talking about how to uncomplicate our relationships. And we're going to use the Bible as a guide to give us great wisdom. So please come back and uh, join us for that. It's going to be an amazing series, and I'm personally looking forward to it because I'm already learning so much through this uh, time of study. Well, right now, what we wanted to do is end our time together celebrating that Jesus is alive. So please stand with us as we worship our risen Savior. This is our prayer for all of you today. As you leave here on Easter Sunday, it's for you to know that God is able. Wherever you find yourself in life right now, whatever you find yourself struggling through, moving through, whatever uh, uh, valleys you might be in or the mountaintop moments you find yourself sitting on. Lord, I, I, I just pray that you know that God is able. He will never fail you. The God who conquered the grave, the God who loved every one of you so much that he sent his son, that God is able. Carry that with you. Hold on to that truth. No matter what anyone else says or what you think, hold on to the truth that God is able. God bless. Happy Easter.